This is WJR's Business Biography. Now here's your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today's featured story, it's one of a CPA turned entrepreneur who turned one location of his business into a business with multiple locations today and one of which is beloved by the communities it serves. We're featuring the story of Imagine Theaters and the man behind it. That CPA turned entrepreneur, Paul Glanz. Imagine Entertainment is today a world-class entertainment company with 28 venues across the Midwest, comprising 30,000 total guest seats. And like most early-stage companies, had humble beginnings, starting with a fully leveraged acquisition of a single-screen location in Clarkston, Michigan, an acquisition made possible by securing a bank loan and tapping out personal credit cards. Paul was now all in and on his way to what would become a truly iconic business in our region. And today, Paul Glanz is recognized as a true visionary and innovator in the field of cinematic exhibition. How did he do it? Well, we're about to find out right here on this edition of Business Biography. Paul, welcome. Here you sit as a successful businessman. You created Imagine Theaters and have led it, along with your partners and team, to great success by any measure. Before we get into how you built the company, first take us back to tell us a bit about your youth and upbringing so that we have a better sense about who you are, the man behind the success story. You know, Jeff, I tell everyone, this is really the God's truth. I'm the guy who's the luck of birth. I was born to a mom and a dad who loved me dearly. And my mom and dad told me that I could be anything I wanted to be in life. But these were pretty modest Upbringings. I mean, I grew up in a 950-square-foot bungalow in Redford Township. My mom worked before most moms worked because my dad's work was kind of sporadic. And so the result was that, you know, their only child, Paulie, was, you know, going to grow up to be great. And it was part of the American dream that each generation wanted the generation that succeeded them to do even better in life. And so I think that, you know, virtually all the success I enjoy in life today is due to the fact that I was unconditionally loved as a child. You know, you hear lots of people in your position, successful people like you, talk about how and why they became successful. That cuts right to the kind of the human side of all of this. And I love your focus on that. It's refreshing. It's real. It's authentic. And that's powerful. Well, in my case, it's just a fact. By the way, my, my folks were not exactly lovebirds. They, they fought with each other occasionally, like most you know, families have uh, issues like that. But the one consistent theme was that, boy, their Polly was going to succeed. And you know, if you tell a kid that often enough, lo and behold, it becomes that self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, a couple of things. Number one, makes you believe. Yes. That's just the way it is. But number two, puts the bar up pretty high. <laughs> I got got to do something to earn my way to it. I mean, that was the standard that they put in front of you and what they expected out of you. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Jeff, I never knew that I had an option other than to go to college. When you graduate from high school, of course, you're going to go to college, even though neither of my folks had been college graduates. I'm a first generation college graduate, but there was never any question that once you graduate from high school, of course, you're going to go to college. And in my case, honestly, I would tell you this, had my father killed me, it would have been justifiable homicide because I was not exactly a model citizen during high school. Really? Oh, my word. You, Paul Glantz? I don't believe it. Yeah, I'm I'm not proud of those days, to be honest with you. 
But what kept me from dying at an early age is due to the fact I got good grades. And for some reason, school came easily to me. And that was really critical to my future life because I was at home during the summer of my high school graduating year. I was probably going to go away to U of M Dearborn because it was a commuter school close to our home in Redford. And I got this letter from Wayne State University. They said, would you like to come here on a full-paid scholarship based on your high school grades? Well, I'll tell you what. Yes, you don't have to ask twice. Here I come. Amazing. So you had this focus on education. It came easy to you. And that led you then to go on to you know, further learning at the college level. And that led you to a career as a CPA. Yes, exactly. Tell us about that trajectory. Well, at the time I graduated from Wayne State, there were eight international accounting firms. And counting what was then Ernst & Winnie and Phoenix, I was rejected by eight out of eight, including Plant Moran and UHY and other local firms. The good student, you? Good student, Paul. And here's why. I made the critical mistake, and, and this is something that all people should keep in mind. The worst thing in life is when you don't know what you don't know. And what I didn't know in college is that I needed a mentor and I should recruit on campus. I failed to recruit on campus. And so when it came time to enter the profession, I thought, well, I'll take the summer off. I'll travel, which I did. It was lovely. And then I'll come back, study for the CPA exam and get a job. I never had a problem getting a job from the time I was 14 years old. Well, Mr. Glantz, you're not coloring within the lines. And so each and every one of them said to me, well, why didn't you recruit on campus? I said, well, I didn't know I was supposed to recruit on campus, but here I am. And they said, well, here you are, but you're not coming to work for us. And so I'd like to believe that occasionally I can learn from my mistakes. And so that precipitated the opportunity for me to return to college. I went back to Walsh College during my master's in taxation. And lo and behold, once I was at Walsh and could again recruit on campus. You did. I did. <laughs> I was no longer unwashed. I was welcomed into the public accounting profession. I was recruited into the tax department of what was then Ernst & Winnie, today Ernst & Young, in downtown Detroit. And uh, again, it was just terrific experience because I was exposed to a broad base of different businesses. I worked on automobile dealerships. I worked on forest products companies. I worked on trusts, estates, you name it. So it was just like drinking from a fire hose. But what was interesting that preceded that was after I was turned down by eight big accounting firms, I ended up securing a job with Comerica Bank as a credit analyst. And that, too, was this spectacular experience because, again, you're looking at manufacturing firms, you're, you're looking at cash flow. I say to people, I learned how to read financial statements before I could put them together. All of that was so important and formative in my career to have that background. And if, as long as you're observant, you keep your eyes open, your ears open, there's a lot to be learned just by hanging around. And so now equipped with a numbers background and an understanding of the financial makings of a business, when and how does Paul Glanz make the leap from employee to business owner? We'll find out when we come back right here on Business Biography. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today we're featuring the story of Paul Glantz and how he created and built Imagine Theaters into the successful business we all know and love today. 
Paul, here you were now. You established a career as a CPA. You were learning a lot about business and, as you said, gaining unique insight into what works and what doesn't in business as a result of seeing all the numbers coming across your desk. And at the same time, you had interesting business opportunities from time to time. I have to ask, were you thinking still in a career orientation at this point, or were you beginning to think, you know, maybe one day I'm learning a lot here. I might want to play my own card in the entrepreneurial world at some point. You know, that didn't come until later. I want to say about eight to 10 years later. And that's when I had a partner at the time. And Carl and I were pretty self-confident. In fact, at our early ages, we thought we knew everything there was to know about business. There was, however, one minor problem. We didn't have two nickels rubbed together. And so how we got started in the business was that we borrowed $50,000 on our credit cards and $75,000 from the bank, and we bought the one-screen cinema in Clarkston, which proved to be the learning base for everything we're doing today. I want to learn a little bit more about how and why it was the theater business. You know, was that just happenstance, an interesting business came along, the numbers looked good, the opportunity looked good, so you were headed to the theater business, or did you have a, an interest in that business that you, you know, made you look for opportunities in that world? So my mom was an avid moviegoer. My dad was not. I would go with her all the time as a kid, but in all candor, and folks are sometimes disappointed when I tell them this, the decision to get in the movie business was very pragmatic. We basically found a business for sale, and the folks that were keeping the books for that business also had another theater. And as opposed to having two income statements, one for each of the respective venues, they had one. And so we had, as accountants, the opportunity to do forensic accounting and figure out just how profitable the Clarkston was compared to the other venue. And it turned out, honestly, Jeff, we simply were buying it at a good price. And that was critically important given our capital structure, right? When it was 100% leveraged, you had to have positive cash flow or else it's not going to work. And so that's, that's really how we got our start. It was pragmatic. We liked the business because we thought it'd be hard to screw this one up. That's the value of the accounting background right there coming into play because you had that capability. You were able to analyze that information and fetter out, draw out that nugget of information that led you to understand that it was underpriced, undervalued, great opportunity going in. A lot of people say you make the money on when you buy, right? And there you were well positioned to do it. And so, Paul, you made the plunge. You borrowed $50,000 and off you went. Yeah, we borrowed 50 grand on our credit cards and 75 grand from the bank. That was our cap too. It started off slowly. In fact, you know, there's a picture that uh, plays on cable TV often called Roadhouse. It's kind of a cult classic these days. And, and the version you see on television has been edited to take out some of the more colorful scenes. And so I remember sitting in the auditorium with my wife, Mary, the first night we were showing Roadhouse. That was the first picture we showed. And uh, I whispered over to her and I said, sweetheart, I'm sorry, we brought porn to Clarkston. Well, interestingly enough, that picture did not perform at the box office. It made it later, but it was a strong summer in 1989. And lo and behold, we had a Batman movie. We had an Indiana Jones film and the Clarkson Cinema was selling out. And then, of course, the single best thing that ever happened to us was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I have a nephew who was about seven years old at the time. And Joe said to me, he said, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, are you going to be playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And I said, well, what the heck is a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle? <laughs> he said, oh, it's so cool. And what was fascinating at the time is that New Line desperately needed play dates for that film. And so even the little pipsqueaks at the Clarkson Cinema could gain access to this film. 
Jeff, I've never had a film that sold out every single show the entire weekend. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did that for us. Needless to say, I have a soft spot in my heart for Joe to this day. Stars did align for you, seemingly. The opportunity to buy the business presented itself. The business was able to be purchased at an advantageous price to you. Here comes Teenage Mutant Ninjas to the rescue. And things were lining up really well early on that really put wind in your sails, both in terms of the success of the business, but also, I'm sure, your own sense of confidence. When you move out of the professional career where you're being paid, where you can count on the paycheck, and you move into becoming an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur no less that's leveraged at that point with a loan on the books, those are some pretty trying times for a lot of people. Yeah, for some reason, I sleep well even when I'm deeply in debt. I think it's a temperament issue. And, and most people, I think, don't become entrepreneurs because they can't disassociate the debt and the risk associated with, with taking on debt from their psyche, from their being in the forefront of their minds. And I've always felt like as long as you had a return on the invested assets that was greater than your cost of funds, that you'd be fine. And that was essentially the basic thesis for the Clarkson Cinema. We had a cost of funds at that point in time, I want to say 14% blended, but the assets were generating about a 40% return. And so, yes, that accounting background really has proven to be valuable in my career. And I would tell you this, whether you've got a background in science, technology, you name it, ultimately, you have to understand the numbers. If you don't understand the numbers, you cannot be a CEO. Understanding the numbers, how business is performing allows you to do critical decision-making and strategic thinking and even tactical thinking that you otherwise would be shooting in the dark. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And Paul, you were now on your way to success as a business owner of your own. I know you lost your parents when you were younger, and so they're not here to witness and rejoice in your success, but I know you're a spiritual guy, and, and beyond being in your DNA your parents are still with you in spirit, certainly, but tell us how the loss of your parents impacted you in your career direction. You know, that's one of the saddest parts of my life, Jeff, that I lost my folks at a pretty early age. My dad died while I was in college in 1977. My mom made it to age 70, and she never really got to see the good fortune I've enjoyed since then. But I think they're in heaven looking down and saying, we did good. I mean, death is part of life, and we never know what life holds. So even though I'm sad that my folks didn't live long enough to see me really enjoy the uh, success that I'm relishing today, again, I, I think that their presence remains with me, and they would be proud if they were here today. Indeed, they would be. Certainly much to be proud of and only getting started. You're listening to the story of Paul Glantz and how he created success out of his business, Imagine Theaters. We're going to head to a quick break, but when we come back, you'll hear Paul tell us how he moved from owning one screen to many, right here on Business Biography. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. It's one thing to have a one-hit wonder in business, but it's quite another entirely when an entrepreneur goes from one location to multiple locations. You're about to hear how Paul Glantz navigated his way to ultimately forming Imagine Theaters as the brand associated with the holding company that now owns multiple locations and licensing still other locations as well. So, Paul, when was Imagine actually formed and how did you go from that one screen to 
imagine and who was involved and how did it happen? Well, in the mid-90s, this is when the two CPAs, the original founders, decided that we wanted to build a theater. We knew enough about the business at that point in time. Ultimately, what we wanted, though, is to find what we characterize as an underserved market, media marketplace that was not already saturated. And there aren't thousands of those available in the United States today. So we looked at Birch Run, and what we liked about Birch Run was that it was sort of below the radar of the major chains that were rapidly expanding at the time. One of the scary moments was not soon after we'd closed on the land purchase in Birch Run, Regal, which has now been bankrupt twice since 1997, was looking at building a theater right across the street from us. Now, had they done so, that could have materially altered the trajectory of our business to this day. Fortunately, that didn't transpire. But we found this underserved market. We had the privilege of relying on a gentleman that both the co-founders had worked with in public accounting. And Jim Hahn and his friend Dale Hole invested $450,000 with us in 1996. And that's what allowed us to open what was then Cinema Hollywood on May 23, 1997. It opened with six screens. Today it has 12 screens. And so we've expanded that footprint. And interestingly enough, even though you might call it a small market, a semi-rural market, that venue does some really strong numbers to this day. But going back to Imagine, we decided that we could conquer the Metropolitan Detroit market, and this would have been around this turn of the century, around 2000, thereabouts. And we began looking for sites in Farmington Hills, and we ended up being referred by a real estate developer to a developer who was working and developing a mall in Novi, was then known as Fountain Walk. And what was interesting about that is it had been approved for a Star Theater, and the landlord had every intention of signing the lease with Star, but they had lost their credit standing by that point in time. Coca-Cola was no longer guaranteeing their debt. That put us in a position where we were on equal footing, even though we were still a very small business. And we ended up signing a lease to do an 18-screen cinema in Novi. Today, it's known as Imagine Novi. And that's how the brand name came about. We actually were provided that name by our landlord. The landlord had intended to use that brand in developing shopping centers. And they said, well, we're not going to use it for shopping centers. Maybe you'd like it. And we said, okay, thanks. There you were, in the right place at the right time once again. Yes. And, and, and you know, that, the bigger picture here is that I don't think anyone who's truly achieved success in business hasn't had some element of luck on their side. And so I consider myself, like Lou Gehrig, the luckiest guy on earth. You might recall that there was a little film that opened in December of 1997 called Titanic. Now, by the way, up until December of 1997, we open on May 23rd of 97. Come December of 1997, we are not hitting our projections. The bank actually at the time had the latitude to restructure our loan so we could do interest only. Now, it's something, sadly, banks are not you know, empowered to do today because of regulatory changes. But at the time, the bank said to us, we think you're going to make it eventually, so we're going to give you some more breathing room. The first time we met our projections, Jeff, was in January of 1998. I had our financial statements done on February 2nd of 1998, submitted those to the bank. The SBA funded their portion. And I say that 1,600 people gave up their lives so we could survive financially. Paul, one of the key hallmarks of the way you led your business's growth is that you made it a real focus to educate yourself and to do research on what was working in your industry, what others were doing, what's next. And you weren't afraid to test and experiment with new ideas rather than just follow the same old, same old model that was out there. 
Yeah, we had the presence of mind to actually become students of the industry. We would go to industry conventions, and we took it upon ourselves to speak to folks who were successful in the industry. And one of those precipice events, for example, was in 1996. We went out to what's known today as CinemaCon, and we met with a gentleman by the name of Wayne Anderson. And we said to Wayne, you know, there seems to be a paradigm shift going on in terms of the seating in theaters. Because if you'll recall, prior to the mid-90s, most theaters were built with gradually sloped floors. Going to the movies was not a great experience if you were of a diminutive size, if you were a kid, because you were appearing in front of the woman who had large hair in front of you or the giant guy who was sitting in front of you. And so this paradigm shift involves stadium seating, essentially seats on risers. And we said to Wayne, if you were building a theater today, Wayne, would you do stadium seating or slope floor? Our plans at that point in time provided for slope floor seating. And Wayne said to us, well, I think if I were building a theater today, I'd do stadium seating. And it was among the best advice we ever got because ultimately that proved to be this paradigm shift where folks said, well, no, if I can't see the screen, I'm not going. It's not a great experience. And so, again, keeping your ears open, listening, learning from others has really been integral to our success. However, this next paradigm shift that we've seen just in the last 10 to 12 years, and as you would expect, you know, things are evolving more quickly now. The industries are changing more rapidly. And so the next paradigm shift, which I call the luxury seating, that certainly does curtail the seating capacity. And it's rather counterintuitive to believe that you could cut your seat count by two-thirds, which is essentially what we've done in all of our venues by going from upright rockers to recliners, that you can actually do more attendance with a third of the former seat count. And that's why I think in many cases, our industry was reluctant to move in that direction because folks said, well, how do you make this work? Because, you know, on Saturday night, we sell out. The way it's worked, honestly, is that more people come on Thursday night and more people come on Tuesday now because they find it to be a great experience and they don't necessarily want to jockey for a seat on Saturday night. So we're doing more of that now. I think ultimately guests want a great experience these days. And I think customers are prepared to pay for a quality experience. In fact, I would tell you that, for example, our large competitor, Regal, just declared bankruptcy. And here's why. It has nothing to do with the fact that the films haven't come back and the quantities or the expectations from Hollywood. It has everything to do with the fact that if you're not offering guests an exemplary experience today, they'll vote with their wallets, they'll vote to stay home, or they'll vote to go somewhere where they can enjoy a great experience. I hear you all the time talk about it. You are Mr. Experience when it comes to theater. Look what you've done. You've changed the whole. In fact, you've redefined the experience. You know, our business is probably analogous to hotels in that it's all about occupancy and average daily room rate, right? In our case, it's occupancy and average ticket price. But moreover, honestly, in our business, it's about food and beverage sales. And if it weren't for the privilege of selling food and beverage and more food and beverage items, we would not have a viable business today. And I would say the single most important thing we've done is to focus on quality. So whereas you might go to one of our competitors' venues and find that they're selling frozen pizza, we took the different tact. We said, look, we've got folks in the marketplace now that are making fresh-made pizza right in front of their guests. Think of Blaze Pizza and others like that. And so we made the conscious decision to put in brick oven pizzas, to brick ovens, to make pizza fresh right in front of our guests. 
And again, it's about quality. People don't want to come and enjoy a, a frozen pizza that's been sitting under a heat lamp for three hours. They want fresh made right in front of them. And then what we do, because it's made fresh right in front of them, if their movie's about to start, we will deliver that pizza or anything that we're cooking directly to their seat. What people really in the world out there don't understand about entrepreneurship is that when you were hypothesizing and testing and considering the model, you have to be saying to yourself, this is a hypothesis. It's always so interesting to me, that moment when the entrepreneur makes the decision, right or wrong becomes obvious later, but how confident were you? in making those critical decisions and investing that way, going in that direction, going all in as you did? I don't think we're ever 100% confident, but as entrepreneurs, I think our adage is this. We try it, we figure out if it works, and hopefully we're not taking risks that jeopardize the entire enterprise with each of those endeavors. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if it doesn't work, you quickly pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and move on. And so I think it's a, a matter of trial and error. And so, for example, one of the episodes in our career was to try a club concept in Birmingham. It didn't exactly go over well. So, scratch that, move on. But with, with Beats Oven, I was pretty well convinced that quality, that making food, display cooking, was very important these days. That folks wanted to see that you were actually cooking fresh food for them. And so, quality food goes along with what I think is that quality experience. What's kind of really interesting about you in, in the context, it's got a little bit of a paradox. I mean, Paul, let me remind you, you're a CPA. You're a numbers guy. Where did all this creativity and boldness and innovation, you're just a numbers guy, Paul. I'm a sales guy locked in a CPA's body, Jeff. Did you know, have you, had you always been that way in life or was this kind of, were you kind of marveling at your own approach to business along the way and saying, wow, where did that come from? You know, I don't consider myself a particularly creative guy. In fact, you know, we use the value and the talents of a lot of creative people, and I don't consider myself the creative guy. And I'll give you a great example. When it came to the reclining chairs, we sadly were not the innovator there. We watched AMC remodel the Star John R and put in the reclining chairs. Lo and behold, they tripled their attendance. And so it didn't take long for me to figure out if folks want to sit down and have their feet elevated, by golly, we better accommodate them. And so in that case, we certainly did go all in at that point in time. And that was probably a, a very healthy thing for us. The sales guy locked in a CPA's body sets a new standard for the movie-going experience by innovating and experimenting, and by doing so, successfully grows his business. You're listening to the story of Paul Glanz and the company he built, Imagine Theaters. We're headed to a quick break. Back with more in a moment right here on Business Biography. Welcome back to WJR's Business Biography with your host, Jeff Sloan. Welcome back to Business Biography. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Today, we're featuring the story of Paul Glantz and how he built his company, Imagine Theaters, into the success that it has become today. One thing for certain that entrepreneurs can count on is that things don't always go as planned. Just when you think you have it all figured out, along comes a pandemic that literally shuts your business down, prevented by law to operate. And that's just the beginning of challenges that entrepreneurs face. What do you do as an entrepreneur when faced with challenges of great magnitude? Paul, one major challenge your business is faced with, even in the best of times, 
is that you're entirely dependent on Hollywood in the end. As good a job as you can do, you can serve all the brick oven pizza you want to serve. But if you can't put the movie on the screen that they're dying to see, that experience by just definition fundamentally doesn't happen. You're absolutely right. But you know what? I'm not one that wants to play the role of victim. And so here's what's going on these days. We are big believers in what's known as alternative content. And so if you look at our venue in Royal Oak, for example, we now have a sports book where we've co-branded with Caesars Entertainment. And so we're showing sporting events. I'm actually an executive producer of a inspirational TED Talk type film right now that we're showing during daytime hours in our venues. With the whole premise being, we need to create self-help. We need to do what we can do as opposed to crying about what Hollywood's doing or not doing, whether they're taking films directly to streaming. We need to take responsibility. We need to do the best we can with the hand that's been dealt to us. I think that's, like you talked about the sports book, it's masterful. It's what we do as entrepreneurs, right? We bob, we weave, we think about how can we fill seats when they otherwise would be fallow. And here's what I'll tell you about the experience, Jeff. It's gotten big enough now that if you have a bad experience at Imagine, and it happens occasionally, I would acknowledge that. But if you have a bad experience at Imagine, it's my fault. I am ultimately responsible. If, however, you have a great experience, it's because the people that are there are serving you well. My failure in the latter, or excuse me, former situation would be I put the wrong people in place. So I'm a big believer in accepting responsibility. And I think that's of paramount importance. Paul, there's a lot of businesses where the owner, the figurehead, the leader of the business is behind the scenes. But in your case, you're very present on behalf of your business. How has Icon Marketing impacted your business? About 10, 12 years ago, we made the decision that I should personalize the business. And I felt like if I could become the face of the business, and if people felt comfortable that Paul's a decent guy, that maybe at the margin, and that's what we're talking about all the time, is just marginal revenue in our business, at the margin, maybe folks would choose Imagine over a nameless, faceless competitor. And so I think it's been a really good thing for us. I'm a big believer that we have to put our best foot forward. I have to not just take from society, but give back. Because if we give back, then I think it's good for business. Folks realize that you're not just a net taker. You're a contributor to society as well. And ultimately, I think our business even has a higher calling. So somebody might say, well, you're in the business of showing movies and selling popcorn. No, you know what we're in the business of? We're in the business of enhancing the quality of life for the people residing in our markets. That's ultimately our mission. And so if, if I can somehow contribute to that in some small way through the personalization by making people understand that I genuinely care about their experience, and I do, every single guest, I care about their experience. But if I can do that, then I think we'll be rewarded with their patronage. What you provide for people is an escape little bit of a, you know, escape from reality, the stresses of the everyday life to be able to go in that suspension of disbelief when the lights go off, you know, there you are caught up in this, in this amazing experience that a great movie can deliver. And you bring families together. You bring young people together, leading to marriages, you know, on a first date or a second date or a 10th date. But the point is, it has a huge impact on people's lives. And the higher the level of quality that a business in your field delivers, the more impact you have. Well, Jeff, that's really our mandate. And if we don't, you'll vote with your wallet and go elsewhere. So I want your market share. I want your, your dollar share. I don't want you going elsewhere. So I just look at it as every day as sort of we're auditioning for the privilege of serving you tomorrow. 
we have to audition well, we have to perform well, or else, you know, the economic system that we're immersed in will take care of itself. But I would also tell you this, nobody expects perfection in life, at least most reasonable people don't. And so I think that what's interesting is when you follow it off and you don't hit it quite right, if you do everything in your power to make it right, then I think folks are very forgiving and they're willing to give you a second chance, especially if normally you perform. And so sometimes I think you can genuinely turn lemons into lemonade. It's really just about human interactions, right? It's make it right. I, and I'm a big believer that if you've not had a great experience at our theater, it's our job to make it right with you. These folks are our guests. I like to treat these folks like they're guests in my home. This is, the, these theaters are an extension of my home, and I want to welcome them. I want them to genuinely feel like we're a place of hospitality, that we're there to serve them. And I believe that all success in business is born out of serving one's guest. Paul, when an entrepreneur loves his or her business, it shows. And there's no doubt, Paul Glantz, you love your business. I do. And that's why I'm not sure I'll ever per se retire because I enjoy it immensely. I, I actually find being immersed in the world of commerce and serving guests and having an entrepreneurial business to be a wonderful means of keeping your intellectual life alive. It's an intellectual challenge every day to think about how do we better serve our guests? How do we continue to, to be a good contributor to society? And so I think that uh, those are things that absolutely allow me to wake up every morning and think, let's get to it. These are pretty challenging times in your industry in particular. Through the pandemic, it was health and safety concerns. Now it's cost of living issues, inflation, people watching their dollars more tightly. They're not as free with their dollars and their spend. You are certainly an optional spend. How and why are you able to plow through these tough challenges when others are closing up shop? I think it's because our venues do meet the expectations of consumers today. Movie going still remains probably the best value in out-of-home entertainment. Make sure that the experience justifies in the minds of consumers a value. Value. Value is a key driver in business today. Without question. Paul, for business owners these days, and especially during the pandemic, it wasn't easy keeping team members employed and focused and keeping them dedicated. Like all great entrepreneurs, though, you make it a priority. What are some of the ways that you achieve this, the taking care of your employees and keeping your employees? So I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, of course, we were closed for upwards of six months. Our supply chain had completely dried up. But we reached a point where the unemployment benefits were sufficiently lucrative. We'd done all the cleaning and maintenance we could do in our buildings. And so we reached a point where we had to furlough folks that we really didn't want to lose. But ultimately, we said, and I think I was probably the leading voice for this, I said, we can't allow our teammates who are furloughed to have to make a decision, do they buy groceries or do they pay their COBRA health insurance premium? And so we made the decision during the pandemic that every one of our teammates who was covered under our health insurance plan would continue to be covered without asking them to pay anything. The company paid 100% of their health insurance premium for they and their, and their family members, their dependents. And it turned out to be terrific for us. Here's why. When we were allowed to reopen, we had an assembled workforce. We never laid off a single one of our general managers. And it was simply because I believed that the, the business would come back. You have to believe. Sometimes you believe your own BS. Ultimately, 
we needed that institutional knowledge, that institutional memory, if we were going to come back. And so we didn't want to lose that muscle. And I think by treating our teammates and demonstrating that we genuinely care about them, they then are in a position to genuinely care about our guests. I want to ask you one last question, and that is, you mentioned it's important to give back, important to give back to the community. Now, you already give a lot by the value of the experience you deliver, but it goes beyond that for you. I think folks look at us and think these are folks who give back. And so, for example, some of our favorite causes are education, making sure we're addressing food insecurity through gleaners, for example. These are important, basic tenants of life, in my opinion. And look, we've enjoyed so much good fortune in our lives. I think it's interesting. I have a friend by the name of Marina who once said to me, well, I said to her, it's a uh, obligation to give back when you enjoy such good fortune. And what Marina Houghton said to me, and correctly so, was, no, Paul, it's not an obligation. It's a privilege. And I believe that Marina's right. It's a privilege to be able to contribute to society. And the good fortune that we enjoy hopefully by providing that value proposition, that great experience to our guests, allows us to help those in society who haven't quite enjoyed such good fortune. At this point, you've certainly achieved a great deal. You've demonstrated success. You've gotten through challenges. You've been a visionary. You've been a bold risk taker. You've done things your way. You've set a new standard. And you're a beloved member of the community. You've got to feel pretty good about what you've achieved and the way you've done it, Paul. I guess I feel pretty good. Again, I would tell you this, Jeff, I think I've enjoyed a lot of good luck. And I've worked hard, believe me, you're right. The harder you work, the luckier you get. But I I feel like I'm the most fortunate guy on earth to have the privilege of participating in the world of commerce, to be able to serve our guests every day, to actually achieve perhaps what we're striving for, which is to enhance the quality of life in the the communities we serve. I feel pretty good about those things and uh, I hope I should. Indeed, you should feel good, Paul. You have earned it. We hope you've enjoyed our feature story today here on Business Biography, the story of Paul Glantz and the company he built and we all love, Imagine Theaters. I'm your host, Jeff Sloan. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Business Biography on the great voice of the Great Lakes, 760 WJR.